0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. <laughs> A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. <laughs> and I'm Anne Friedman. Why are you laughing?
1: Because I feel like you're just like, you're, it's like it was the perkiest. <laughs> I am perky right now. <laughs> uh, don't police my perkiness. <laughs> I'm not trying to police your perkiness. I loved it. Don't mistake me mentioning it for me policing it because I love it. I'm okay. here for
0: it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what's going on? Oh my gosh. Um, we are totally cheating this week. Oh, it is a cheat week. It's definitely a cheat week. We are sitting together in a very luxurious hotel room. You might remember it from last week's you episode. You might remember <laughs> it from last week's episode. You guys, it's bigger than my apartment. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> We're basically going to introduce you to two interviews that we did with two great ladies. But what do they have in common? They have in common that they're authors. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and they've uh, they've both written books about female pleasure.
1: Ooh. I mean, it sound it's a funny thing to even talk about because like obviously we are pro female pleasure.
0: 100 cyg announcement time ding 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 there are a few tickets left to the philly show do you want to come see us in philadelphia the answer should be yes july 16th at the trocadero all the information is on the call your girlfriend website and this is the last 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 time that you can get stuff from this run of cyg merch so if you still want something go for it
1: yeah and like the pre-order door is closing on june 18th so if you don't order um before that date you may never see some of this stuff ever again so that's you know get it in gear oh Um, i gotta order my stuff i know right but yeah there's
0: still time you still have some days We're definitely pro-female pleasure, but what does female pleasure mean? I mean, what does it mean? And I think that the the reason I'm excited about this episode is that it presents the full spectrum of what female pleasure can be. Mm -hmm. I talked to a friend of the podcast, Jill Filipovich. Hey, Jill, who's listening in from Kenya. Jill is a lawyer who is also, like, a feminist who had this really internet famous blog called Feminist. Feminist Um, blog,
1: World Glory Days. Yeah, Yeah. it's like,
0: Jill's been around. She's written for Cosmo about, like, global uh, global health issues and women's rights and development. You know, like, really smart lady in the thick of it. She has this new book out called The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. The reason I love this book is because, like, the title is not subtle at all. You know, like, this... This sort of stuff is like you, you can either you know like you could be really subtle like feminist title or you could just go for it, and uh, in this case she went for it completely and I think it's a it's a win and so Jill's book is basically about the Declaration of Independence promises everybody that you know like happiness and a life of pre like freedom and like you know the pursuit of freedom, but the truth is that like. Historically, that has only applied to... I've seen that Barbara Jordan clip. You know, like, uh, Barbara Jordan, a great Texan woman. Maybe we should play that clip. We'll play the clip. Okay.
2: I recognize the gentlelady from Texas, Ms. Jordan. The purpose of general debate, not to exceed a period of 15 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Jordan. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation and court decision i have finally been included in we the people today i am an inquisitor and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that i feel right now my faith in the constitution is whole it is complete it is total and i am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. You know, this is,
0: like, historically, like, yes, it says for everyone, but it's really for men. And so Jill really flips that on its head. Her whole thesis is basically that, like, pursuing happiness is really complicated, but that it's something that, like, women are really interested in and actually, like, strive towards just as hard as everybody else. And she's not talking about, like... I don't know, like, getting manicures and pedicures and, you know, like, ice cream and a pony and unicorns. Like, no, literally, like, the happiness that is promised to us in the, in the Constitution. Like, fundamental, life-fulfilling, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. And so she's also really great at writing kind of a, about her own life and contemporary, like, women is, women's issues. And so she talks about all of the things that she wishes she had known at 21, how, like, your decisions don't have to be final mm. and... The kind of character flaws that you have and what the markers of adult life are and how that applies, how that can help like shape your life and, and thinking about that. So whether it's marriage or having rich friendships with women and the full spectrum of uh, lady pleasures. So I called Jill up while she was on book tour and um, I'll let her explain herself in her own words. My name is Jill Filipovich, and the
3: book is *The H Spot: The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness*.
0: Great! It's so nice to have you on *Call Your Girlfriend*, Jill. How are you doing?
3: I'm good. I'm so excited to be on my favorite podcast.
0: Uh, this is this is exciting for us because you live all the way in Kenya. So whenever I see like a Kenyan listener on our analytics, I know it's you.
3: You know it's me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like where, what the idea of writing, like where the idea of writing this book came from? Because I think that H. Bot, you know, it's uh, the the title is either a little bit radical or actually very radical, depending on how tongue in cheek you want to be. I was like, oh, wow. Orgasms and bombs. Like good, like good callback, Jill.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I can't take credit for the title, but, uh, but it, but it is clever. No, I mean, the idea for the book came after, you know, years of feminist writing, both kind of commentary and then more reported pieces, where I find myself addressing kind of the same issues over and over. And there are often sort of times in women's lives that were the most difficult issues having to do with sexual violence, reproductive health and rights, you know, even things like trying to get birth control and getting screamed at as you're going into a Planned Parenthood clinic or even writing about women's sex lives was often kind of like the worst parts of those lives and wasn't writing a lot about pleasure or what made women happy. After years of doing this, kind of just came to the conclusion that it seems like the real underlying problem was this sharp hostility to women seeking pleasure and a sort of impulse to make women's lives unnecessarily difficult whenever we were taking steps to take control of them. Feminists and I think the feminist movement has done amazing things, but I sort of became increasingly convinced that just trying to make women equal in a system that has been built by and for men was just never going to work. And that the more interesting question is what would the system look like if we got to build it ourselves? And if we were doing that, then like, what's the goal? It seemed to me the goal had to be, you know, happy, pleasurable lives because like, what else are we all doing here?
0: Yeah. And I mean, like, to be clear, you're not talking about like pleasure or happiness and the like visceral sense that we think about, you know, like joy or like the amusement part, like kind of <laughs> exhilaration. I don't know. I was so struck by uh, reading some of this when you, the part where you talk about, um, you know, it's like because the the mission of the women's movement hasn't like done everything that it's supposed to do. You say that we can topple the, the most stubborn roadblocks and you kind of suggest this like feminism and politics that reorient themselves away from a simple equality toward happiness and pleasure. I thought of the phrase like away from simple equality was actually, you know, I was like, wow. I don't know. I was really struck by that. Because I don't think that I had ever thought of those things as, um, you know, like completely separate or even really considered what the happiness part in the Constitution is really about, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I think that you, you make like a fairly convincing case for that.
3: I mean, I I hope so. Um, You know, and to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about equality. No, (laughs) of course. Of of course we should. You're
0: like, forget Um, equality ice cream for everybody. (laughs) No, I mean, of course we should.
3: uh, We should care about equality. But I mean, to me, the more interesting question is, okay, well, what does equality mean? I mean, who are we trying to make ourselves equal to? And then why? Um, And, you know, when the founders wrote about the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, in the declaration of independence, I mean, they weren't saying everyone is entitled to like ice cream and a pony. Right. Um, what, what they were saying is that this sort of very, at the time, very small segment of the American population. So landowning white men were entitled to this vision of a happy life that meant pursuing personal knowledge, that meant exploration, that meant overcoming challenges. Um, and that meant at least trying to and having the opportunity to forge their own identities. Um, and that's something that just has not really ever been on the table for women and for people of color. Um, and instead, all of us were kind of relegated to the background, propping up this system that was allowing this same small group of people to thrive. To me, the kind of ultimate goal of the women's movement and you know movements for equality and social justice in general, you know, it should be, okay, what kind of world do we want to live in? What do our laws and policies and institutions look like if we get to decide who they serve? And that seemed to be a conversation that wasn't really happening in what I think is an understandable effort to just kind of catch us up.
0: Um, yeah, like policy never addresses that, right? Like policy is always like, here's how we get equal pay or how, here's how we remove like I don't know, like an important barrier, but nobody's really saying like, how do we support people in genuinely like fulfilled and content lives?
3: Right. And how do we kind of stop treating women as if we're this like marginal interest group (laughs) Um, and actually fold our lives and experiences into like the baseline assumption from which we are making law?
0: So for, for writing this book, you actually went on the road and talked to a lot of women, like one-on-one.
3: I did, yeah, which was a really fun part of getting to research this. You know, went and stayed in various people's homes, (laughs) had lots of long conversations, and you know, did a lot of obviously kind of formal interviewing, but also just sort of observing of what people's lives, who are living under very different circumstances than me, looked like, and tried to combine that, you know, with social science research on what actually makes us happy. You know, and wanted to have that component of it because you know women are more than half of the u s. population. And most women in the u s, you know, their lives do not look like that of you know a highly educated thirty something year old unmarried childless white woman in Brooklyn. <laughs> so you know wanted to wanted to paint a picture of American womanhood that was hopefully a little bit more accurate than my fairly narrow experience of it
0: without giving like too much of the book away like what were like what was like one very surprising thing to you that you found out on the road
3: gosh i mean there were there were a lot of them i mean i guess and i wouldn't say that this was necessarily surprising you know is that even in the face of, of great obstacles and i think the story of like being a woman in america today is is unfortunately facing a lot of obstacles you know women still pleasure seek in nearly every aspect of their lives. Right. So I think we have, you know, images of women who pleasure seek is either kind of like hedonistic or immoral and, you know, women who sort of p- always put others first as the kind of platonic ideal of femaleness. But, you know, what I found obviously is that like everyone <laughs> seeks pleasure and happiness for herself <laughs> and where women are often kind of the most frustrated and unhappy are where those efforts butt up against sort of man-made and often sort of politician-made realities, you know, that stymie our ability to forge our own identities and seek fulfilling lives.
0: In what ways do you think, I don't know, maybe this is a dumb question, but because I know that you li- you live not in the U.S., like, <laughs> what were similarities kind of that you found with, like, talking to African women? Do you have, is there, like, a ideal world in which, like, you can do this exact same kind of work on a global level, maybe?
3: Yeah, I hope so. So when I get back to Nairobi, we're actually arranging an event around the book. We're going to have a panel discussion of Kenyan women, and I'm very curious to, to hear their thoughts on how these ideas kind of apply in in their local context. But you know, from reporting in Africa, I think the sort of the one big overarching narrative is that I mean, women around the world do there's this sort of model of female sacrifice that exists perhaps not everywhere, but certainly everywhere I've been. (laughs) Um, And this idea that part of a woman's role in any society is to do unpaid or underpaid and undervalued labor that often involves caring for other people. And that that work almost anywhere in the world is both dominated by women and not a thing that is particularly socially valued. And that keeps women, I think, both kind of unhappy and functionally very marginalized.
0: That is nuts. Makes me a little depressed. So I'm like, how <laughs> do we how do we end on a good positive note? Uh, tell me one positive thing that you hope that this book will do for like people who read it, and especially for like maybe policymakers who read it.
3: Yeah. So I mean, the one thing that I would love the book to do is to get people to just kind of think a little bit outside of the box on what policy solutions to this stuff could look like. Um, and you know, I think we obviously the kind of laundry list of feminist policy demands I think would go a long way to making women happy, but that's that can't be the end-all be all of this discussion. So when I was writing the conclusion of the book, I actually talked to to Anne, your lovely co-host, and she offered kind of one really interesting out-of-the-box idea for a, a policy change, which would be, you know, allowing every woman to sort of designate her person as you know, her legal or medical guardian, should she become incapacitated? You know, and right now we structure that stuff around the nuclear and traditional family. That person is your husband or they're your parent. And this idea of honoring and respecting the reality of of women's lives and men's lives to you now, that much of our lives aren't structured around that old model. You know, what she proposed, I thought was like a really interesting and relatively simple idea. So I would love other sort of ideas and proposals like that to come out of the book. And, you know, hopefully to eventually reach the ears of people that are making the decisions.
0: That sounds great. I'm super excited to have more people read it and react to it. The H Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness by Jill Filipovich is out right now. So pick it up at your local bookstore. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much
3: for having me, Amina.
0: Oh, yes. Pick up the H bot at your local indie bookstore or on Amazon if you're a trash human like me. <laughs>
1: So, okay, on related notes of pleasures, both superficial and deep, I know you've been watching I Love Dick. Uh, That's how I feel about it, the most pleasurable moan. (laughs) uh, It's so amazing. So I think there's a good chance you probably have heard of this book by now, but it was written by Chris Krause in 1997 and then reissued, I think, around 2006, which is really when... The internet, like the internet, loved it. Like I definitely, it was an
0: Instagrammable book cover. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, <laughs> whatever <it's>, it takes. <laughs> but I think it's also like
1: the book cover is Instagrammable because the book itself is like pretty iconic. Absolutely. Um, so the book, kind of on a superficial level, is a story of a woman. It's a novel about a woman named Chris Kraus who is frustrated because she is having trouble getting the film community to accept her brilliance when it comes to making films. She's married to cultural critic type guy, right? Isn't that what he is? Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. Professionally adjacent to her. Exactly. Exactly. Which gives me lots of feels as someone who that question of like, could you time machine to the past and tell yourself not to do something? I'd be like, don't date people in your profession, girl. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's like one of my number ones. I'm just like, who would I be if I hadn't made those choices? No journo. (laughs) Yeah, hashtag no journo. Anyway, so she is in a relationship with someone who is, yeah, professionally adjacent and becomes sort of fixated on another professionally adjacent man who is kind of an asshole, but like she's fascinated by him. And... She, together with her husband, writes him some letters and then on her own writes him some letters. And But the book is really a lot about exploring relationships to power and women's relationships to making art and agency in making art and um, power dynamics within relationships. It's deep and it's complicated. And it is it is like a book that for me is like a real thinky book, you know, like not a very like visual watch the plot unfold book. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard they were adapting it into a TV show for Amazon, I was like, oh, really? Were you nervous about what was going to happen
0: with this book? No, because you know that my preferred way to discover media is to watch the show (laughs) and then (laughs) read the book. (laughs) All of my favorite things, I'm like, what? This is from a book? I'm like, the script's so good. And then they're like, it's a book. Um, but no, obviously I had read the book. And I, obviously. Know, I, I wasn't, um, you know. I'm, don't try to play. I know I'm you're of, it I'm like... on top of the Instagram book community. Don't Listen. worry. Um, <laughs> if my favorite Instagram models tweet it or Instagram it, like, I'm reading it. But I had read the book. I was super excited about the TV show, obviously, because, like, it's a Jill Soloway production. Mm. And Catherine Hahn is, Ugh. you know, like, goals. I sat across from her at a dinner what? one time. And she was wearing the most beautiful red crushed velvet suit. This was, like, in Park City, Utah. It was... I feel faint. It was <laughs> negative, negative million degrees Everybody looked a mess. Mm. It's the one time a year where I buy boots from Zappos that I'll never wear again because sure. I don't out there own... in your Canada Goose jacket. Exactly, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love my Canada Goose though. And um, she like walked in looking amazing. She was hilarious and like very gracious. But just watch, I was like, "Oh, you are like goals." Hashtag goals. Mm. Yeah, and so I will say that the show is
1: almost like inspired by the book and by certain plot points but it's like it's 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 definitely not it's not like
0: a straight book to amazon uh (laughs) (laughs) experience so definitely keep an open mind about that i appreciate the stylistic differences because Mm. i think that adapting a book like that that is really all like you said it's a thinky book so a lot of the action happens in your head I don't know how to write TV, but I feel like that would be a really hard thing to do exactly straight from the book. So I don't mind it at all. You know, Kevin Bacon's even okay in it. Like, (laughs) it's fine. Just kidding. I'm a huge Kevin Bacon fan. I know. I was like, don't even lie to these listeners. I know. But uh, (laughs) but can I say one thing, though? I was really disappointed by the marketing campaign for this. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was a joke. Please describe it. The marketing campaign for a book written by a woman about another woman Mm -hmm. was literally just billboards of Kevin Bacon's face. Well, there's, there is, at least around LA, the billboards, and this is what I thought you were Mm -hmm. going to
1: say, are um, an image of kevin bacon and katherine Hahn kind of in like a locked in a gaze so it's oh, like yeah. very kind of sexy mm-hmm. looking i've seen that one but then they say be empowered yeah and i was like i actually couldn't in my dream world this is like mocking empowertizing because the book actually is about what is empowerment anyway okay.
0: that's definitely your dream world because capitalism is dirty Ugh. and you can make pure art and some idiot person in a marketing department will go have you ever heard of empowering? Oh my god. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. The couple of billboards that I saw and like a lot of the promo was it would be like just him solo. Ugh. And I was like this no. is like this is not going to make me like I love Kevin Bacon but like fine i would watch any tv show with this cap. is like about, i'm not the yeah. test audience for this but you know what i mean it <laughs> was just very i was disappointed by that but that's obviously not something that the filmmakers control so like that's right. not what i'm saying it's just such a yeah like capitalism is a dirty game you can make a female gaze tv series but that's what's so and, subversive yeah. about mm-hmm. like watching this stuff and liking it is that when you find when like people who obviously have this like pursuit of like feminist pleasure art who are able to place it in these mega corporations. Yeah. And there's something like really subversive and dare I say empowering. Oh my God. About that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, so yeah, like uh, a few weeks ago, I was at an incredible bookstore in Dallas called The Wild Detectives. A few awesome CYG listeners came, so maybe some of the some of you will find this to be a repeat. But anyway, I I interviewed Chris Kraus. We talked about I Love Dick a little bit and about the role that it's played in her career because she's written four other books and several other essays and short collections and um, obviously made films. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Incredibly prolific. Right. But, you know, I talked to her a little bit about what it's like to be known so much for this one thing that is you know, not unrepresentative of her work, but definitely doesn't really touch, like, the breadth and depth of what she's done. And then we also talked about her book, which is coming out not until August, um, which is a biography of Kathy Acker, who's... Yeah, writer, poet, performance artist, who... Yeah, it was, like, with this kind of, like, larger-than-life figure who punk, Chris actually punk knew. Punk before punk. Well, yeah, and, like, co- like coexisting with and actually, like, kind of disdainful of certain parts of punk. And, like, she had a lot going on. And she also is noteworthy because she was someone who, like, sought to be famous and be known. And, like, for women living decades ago, especially, the idea of, like, pursuing a wide audience for your work and being unashamed about that fact, not being like, Oh, people like it. What? And self-effacing, but being like, no, actually I'm trying to get famous here. It predates so much about the way I think we now respond to modern public figures and artists and celebrities who do that.
0: Can't wait to hear it. Here we
1: are. It was also, this was recorded outdoors. And so if you hear some ambient noise, it's because we're not sitting in a hotel room. (laughs) I'm curious about how, you know, because she is someone whose life and whose image have taken on their own narrative, have, you know, she's become mythologized, whether you identify with that part of her story, whether whether you feel that people mythologize you or your work
4: at all? If they do, and I guess the TV show I Love Dick is going to make that inevitable. Good plug. To some degree. <laughs> um... I choose to just kind of put my head down and pretend it's not happening. I really, I never wanted it. Mm -hmm. Kathy really wanted it. I mean, that's definitely a difference. She wanted it from the time she was 23. And a really critical part of the book. And I think everybody looks for this in a biography, right? That tipping point. Like, when did the famous person go from becoming like us, not famous, to becoming really famous? And they rarely tell the truth about that, you know? <laughs> it always takes a lot of work for that to happen by a lot of people. And so I was acutely aware of how she made that happen for herself, how she worked towards it, who she cultivated, what all the little stopping stones that were. Um, when people kind of throw that back at me because of I Love Dick and the TV show, it's like, I mean, I just do everything I can to, like, ugh, take it down. Let's just talk. I really don't want that.
1: Which is so funny because for me, I've only seen the pilot episode of the TV show, but I've obviously read the book and they feel like totally separate projects. Do you feel that they're like close at all? Or do you feel like I do that there's quite a bit of distance between the book and the
4: Well Jill I mean Jill and her crew obviously they had to pick up on some aspects of the book Mm -hmm. and not all of them because that's what TVs and movies do. There has to be a very clear line. So they picked up on the infatuation and the obsession and her, you know, the story of her, the built-on sort of Romang mm-hmm. aspect of it, her, where she's kind of becoming herself through this obsession. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Han just does it so beautifully. And with I mean, it's just level this level of acting. I've seen the whole first season now. And it's this level of acting that you never see on episodic TV. It's like watching a John Cassavetes movie. I mean, it's just so intimate and so wild.
1: Do you have, is there a part of you that wanted to work on that more directly or be involved in it as a, I mean, I know you're also a director and a filmmaker.
4: Oh, God, no. That was the last <laughs> thing I wanted. That's unhealthy. Um, healthy. I don't write script. I don't know anything about writing a successful script. I wouldn't want to be the writer sort of hovering around protecting the book. I mean, as soon as they proposed it and we agreed, it was like, let it go. Is
1: it difficult to be so known for one book out of so many that you've written? And
4: I'm doing my best to remedy that, Anne <laughs> I
1: mean... <laughs> You'll notice
4: on the book table, there's another book called Aliens and Anorexia, and you might enjoy that one, too.
1: Was that rude? Sorry. Um. (laughs) No, that was a good question. Okay. I will confess that I recently, knowing we were doing this, binged your entire catalog in the span of about two weeks. Some of it I had read before and some of it I hadn't. And I Love Dick was not my favorite, reading reading everything, you know, together. And, um, you know, I don't know. I was just thinking about how hard it must be to have this one piece very, very prominent when it's part of a whole body of stuff and to just be constantly asked about lust and obsession all
4: the time. Well, I tiring. mean, this is inevitable because of a TV show. Sure. I mean, there's just the enormous investment that I cannot even begin to comprehend that goes into producing a TV series. So... Yeah, that's normal, but I hope that um, this new book will be published by Penguin in the UK and by more mainstream presses in Europe. I hope that eventually other work of mine, especially Summer of Hate, that's like, was really an important book to me because it sort of steps out of the cocoon of the New York and European intellectual worlds, and it's set in the Southwest um, during the Bush years in Albuquerque and Phoenix. And has a lot to do with underclass life and consciousness and, you know, prison, jail, uh, 12-step programs, addiction. It's a step into a whole other world. And that book was, I mean, it could be that this is a more timely book now, you know, than it was right after it was published.
1: Yeah, and you've you've talked before about how your writing relates to your personal experience so so intimately. And maybe you could talk a little bit about Summer of Hate and about what in your life inspired you to write that novel and how you felt personally invested in issues like, you know, the carceral state.
4: It's a third person book. But there had to be somebody like me in the book. Um her name is Kat Dunlop in the book, and she's kind of a jaded LA cultural critic. And if you don't have that character, the people who buy books are not going to be very interested because there has to be a character that's like you. Um, so Kat is there for you. She's like everybody here. She's
1: <laughs> Jaded? Are you all jaded?
4: <laughs> you know, she's a, a member of the creative class. But really the protagonist of the book is... Um, the guy that she meets, Paul Garcia, who's just getting out of prison. And that was really who I wanted to focus on on the book. And I did have this experience. I went to Albuquerque in 05. I had bought some apartment buildings when I arrived in California um, in the late 90s. And they're, you know, for very little money. And they escalated greatly in value with that bubble in 05. And I sold them, and people said, oh, go to Las Vegas or go to Phoenix, and I couldn't bear going to those places. But I'd given a reading once in Albuquerque, and I thought, okay, I can handle Albuquerque. So without knowing very much about it, I bought three apartment buildings in Albuquerque in pretty low-rent, sketchy areas. Like I think there was an episode of Breaking Bad, you know, with a, with a shooting that was, took place outside of one of my buildings. So that's kind of where I was going. So I went there, I actually had a, I mean, I have this whole other part of my life that does this, you know, fixing up things. I had a crew, a very non-art world crew, who worked with me and they went out to New Mexico. And we finished and I put an ad in the paper to hire a manager so I could leave. I was gonna go to India. Um, And the Paul Garcia character answered the ad. And he was looking for a property manager job because he was getting out of prison. And all the jobs that he was applying for had the felony question, and he knew that he had to find some kind of little tin pot mom-and-pop operation that wasn't going to have a hard time with a felony. And also, there was an apartment offered, and so I got to know him. We fell in love, in fact, and the person who inspired the character, Paul Garcia, is now a psychologist who runs a clinic in South Central for formerly homeless people, And is my husband. But following his experience, how incredibly hard it is to dig out of a hole of getting out of prison. I happened to have money at that time because I had sold those buildings. And I was able to help him. And I was surprised by just how much it costs to get somebody back on their feet after an experience like that. It's bottomless. The restitution and the fines and the court fees, and they have to pay for probation, and there was a DUI involved. So there's the blow car. You have to pay for the blow car. You have to pay for the monitoring of the blow car. You have to pay for your own probation. You have to pay for everything. And he'd gone to college and had a student loan that defaulted, and so the only way he could enroll in UNM, you know, and get the benefit of state, you know, funded tuition was if he paid off the bad loan that he was so high when he signed the papers he didn't know what he was signing and a loan that he'd taken for $3,000 10 years ago had ballooned into a debt of over $20,000. Who has that kind of support getting out of jail or prison? Hardly anybody. I added up like the expense it takes about seventy dollars or $80,000 to clean up the mess and who has that? Who can do that? I mean, and... Even with that, it's so incredibly difficult to get out of that quicksand. So I started, I mean, I'd always read about this. I'd always given money to Amnesty and to other organizations and the ACLU. But I got so much closer to this and I came to understand it in a very immediate way.
1: It's, it's interesting because I was saying to you earlier that the the theme of I Love Dick that really resonated with me is who has power and how do the rest of us access it and it seems you know it's really interesting to look at that from not through this sort of like gender relationships relational way but through a big systemic you know state policy way essentially but it's also personal because as you say your now partner, what does he think of uh, your art world? Like what does he think about like the the kind of world that you exist in that you were hoping to represent with the character that's like more more like you slash us?
4: Well, in what respect? Do you mean, is is, is he an art lover, or does he mind being in a book? I'm just, I'm always
1: curious about outsider's observations. I have to assume that he wasn't a part of, you know, what you
4: might define as your Well, I mean, Philip is only half a civilian now, because he's like, you know, we have the same friends, and he goes to all the art events, (laughs) and so he's not a complete civilian anymore, but when he, you know, when he was an art world virgin, he caught and done right away, it's like, he's like, oh, it's just a big clusterfuck. Mm. You know, you Mm -hmm. do this for him. He does this for you. He does this for, you know, on and on and on. You all blurb each other's books. You all (laughs) set up each other's shows. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally inside game.
1: Was that a refreshing perspective or is that how you already felt?
4: Well, I mean, it's no secret.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not Um, a secret, but it's easy. It's easy to pretend maybe that's not quite how it is or to ignore it. I don't know.
4: I know. I mean, like, the worst thing is when, like, people who are participating in this incredibly rigged and fatuous (laughs) system pretend that it has anything to do with their personal merit. (laughs) (laughs) That is so conceited.
1: Yeah. And in a weird way to bring it full circle, that's one thing that I love about Kathy Acker types who are just totally open about wanting fame and renown by any
4: means necessary. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I totally, I mean, she totally put on the table what goes on underneath the table. She wanted it. She said she wanted it. It was all over her books. It was all over her interviews. She was not discreet in any way. Right. And that's something that women especially are often punished for, I feel. Oh, God, yes. But do you... Do you and so was she. Okay. Well, You've got to read the book and I see know. what happened to I'm, her in London. I can't wait. They loved her for it. <laughs> And then a year and a half later, they hated her for it.
1: And then she had all those 80s photos that she couldn't overcome. Right. And yeah. she's just
4: totally kind of chewed up and spit out. Right. Do
1: you feel that sense of wanting to be known for certain things? Or do you, do you identify with that part of who she is?
4: Um, I'd like to be known as a writer. Not necessarily the writer of I Love Dick. <laughs> Noted. Noted. <laughs> But, but um,
1: you know, not, not as an artist more generally or as a filmmaker and a writer or a, you know, j- just a writer.
4: Yeah, just a writer. I mean, like very old school writer. You know, lots of writers also write criticism. Lots of writers also do editorial work or co-edit an imprint or a magazine. So, no, I mean, I feel like all my work has been the work of a writer. Right. Do you write every day? Only if I'm working on something. If I'm, you know, once I'm working on something, yeah, I have to kind of keep it going. But I mean, I don't see any point in like writing for the sake of writing unless I'm actually working on something. Thank you. you. (laughs) (laughs) you. Chris Krause forever and ever. Goals.
0: Goals. (laughs) Seriously. Um, Yeah.
1: You know when you meet someone and they're like everything you hope they would be?
0: I know Anne. I'm sitting right next to you. Stop!
1: <laughs>
0: stop, stop. Uh, you know, like a celebrity
1: creative person. Come on. I know, Anne. Oh my god, stop. <laughs> I'm like
0: Anne is blushing so hard. It's very flattering. You are you uh. are ludicrous. Okay. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at CallYRGF or email us at CallYRGF at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, look that up yourself, or on Instagram at CallYRGF. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All other music you heard today was composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. And this podcast is produced by the beautiful Gina Delbeck.
1: See you on the internet. (laughs) See you on the internet, boo.